0: Do you ever try to speak to an unbeliever about God, or even those that kind of do believe? Inevitably, the question of justice will come up. The question is, all right, if God is all-powerful, then why do tragedies happen? Why do little kids die? Why do forest fires and other natural disasters happen? Why do earthquakes and hurricanes happen? Or why does God allow bad people to do bad things? Some people say, I can't believe in God because of Hitler, or I can't believe in God because of that school shooter, or because of what my mother did to me, because if God was good, he would stop it. Now, if you are throwing that question in God's face as an excuse to live however you want, then you need to hear the stern rebuke of Scripture, because there is a very simple biblical answer to these things, although it's not always easy to receive that answer. But if you are coming to God with a broken heart, and you truly want to understand You need to know that you are right in line with what the Bible itself expresses. It's interesting to me that very often uh, people will criticize the Bible with things that the Bible itself says. Most common one, well, the church is just full of hypocrites. I could never go to a church like that. You know, Jesus had a problem with hypocrites, too. And that's probably where you learned the word hypocrite, actually, is from Jesus. But it's the same thing when we say, why doesn't God do something about all of this? There's two Psalms that I could read. There were like eight, but I had to trim it down to two here that maybe you felt this before. Psalm 119, verse 84. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? You ever felt that way? So did David, and God put it in your Bible. Psalm 74, verse 10. Here's one. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Forever? I heard somebody not long ago say that he doesn't like Christianity as a religion because the people don't stand up and fight for themselves. And what kind of God would allow his people and even his son, Jesus, to be killed and to die? Such a person obviously very much misunderstands the purpose of the cross and that Jesus Christ said, no one takes my life from me. However, the attitude that says, Lord, how long is this going to go on? is a biblical one. The desire for justice is the groan of all creation. What you must know is that God hears those prayers and that someday God is going to answer those prayers. And that's what we're going to talk about in Revelation 6 today. Especially in recent years, everyone is crying out for justice and for retribution for old wrongs to be righted, for every injustice that has ever happened to be corrected, here and now and immediately and swiftly and violently and with no regard to the cost. You need to hear this, and some of us are on the other side of that political divide, that that call is righteous. To desire for everything to be made right immediately and instantly is a good desire. However, what such people and what all of us very often do not realize is that the delay of God's justice is the demonstration of God's mercy. Can I say that again? The delay of God's justice is the demonstration of God's mercy. Why doesn't God send swift and instant justice now? Because more people will be caught in that justice and that wrath than you think. We say things like that under the assumption that when it comes, I certainly won't be caught up in that judgment and that punishment. When in fact, that is exactly what the Bible says. When justice comes, it will not be relief for most people. In fact, for almost all people. And God is delaying in order to allow more people to repent and be brought under his grace so that they do not fall under his wrath. Let's look at this. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. We'll start with this here. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The scene here is the same as it's been from chapter 4 and 5 and early part of 6. This is the throne room of heaven. God holds in his hand a scroll sealed with seven seals. In case you're not familiar with what that is, maybe you've seen an old movie where they will fold the paper over. They'll pour hot candle wax on it. They'll take a ring or a seal and press it down. And then when the wax dries, that seals the document and holds it shut. Well, there is a scroll with seven of these on it. And this scroll represents, at its most basic level, there may be more to it, it represents God's plan for the end. It represents God's justice poured out on the world. But nobody was found worthy to open it. Because everybody else deserves the same justice, so how can anybody else work it out, right? Well, one person was found. Like we just sang, it was the Lamb of God who was slain, who represents Jesus Christ. He's called the Lamb because he was a sacrifice for sins, just like in Passover. And he begins to open the seven seals. And the first four seals we saw were the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse. And if traffic on YouTube is any indication of how much that subject interests people, that video we posted online received way more views, way faster than anything else we've put up there. Because that's the title that people go, oh, okay, I want to learn something about this. I've heard about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. What it represented, without going into great detail again, it's really all of a piece, is the rise of the final evil empire. That's what's going to happen at the end. A final evil empire will rise, and it's called Babylon. We'll debate later if that is a symbolic or a literal name. We'll just call them Babylon. And that that will lead to worldwide calamity, war, economic disaster, death of all kinds. That's the first four seals. Well, the fifth one is different. It reveals Christian martyrs under the altar, And we're going to see several times in the book of Revelation that the throne room of God is laid out like the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament. In fact, Moses was told to build it according to the design of what it is in heaven. Hebrews confirms this for us. And uh, we've talked about that at length in the book of Leviticus and, and in the end of Exodus if you want to go listen to those studies. But there's an altar there. And so the problem is there's two altars in the, in the tabernacle, there's the bronze altar, the brazen altar, sometimes called, where they would offer the sacrifices of meat, the sheep and the goats and the oxen. And what you would do, according to Leviticus 4.7, is you would take the blood that was not sprinkled and you would drain that under the altar. And in the temple, at least, there was a plumbing system that would lead all that away. So this is likely where this is coming from, that the blood of the martyrs is under the altar because we live in imitation of Jesus and that if we die, we die with him. And so if he died as a sacrifice, they're under the altar. The other option though, is that this is the golden incense altar, which represented prayer in the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the one before that, there was a golden altar about the size of this pulpit. You would heat it up and you would put incense on it and it would burn and it would make it all smell nice. And because they are praying to the Lord, and because in chapter 8 an angel is going to take the incense bowl of the prayers of these saints, some people believe this is the incense altar, or maybe John is mixing his metaphors and it's not that big a deal. The question becomes, are these the martyrs from all time or just from the tribulation? Last time we talked about this at length, the Bible outlines one last seven-year period that we call the tribulation. So are these all saints throughout all history or just those that have died during this period? It's really not important as far as how you interpret this passage. I think this is probably referring to the tribulation saints, meaning not everybody from Stephen forward, but those who have died since the rapture and since the rise of Babylon, Because what he's inaugurating is the rise of Babylon and then the martyrs who die. And they also say, those who are now persecuting us. There's that present tense aspect of it. And it could be that's what's going on. But uh, I, I think the application is certainly broader than that. It is abundantly clear, without interpreting this passage exactly the same way, that believers in Jesus will be absolutely and utterly ravaged during those last seven years. Jesus in Matthew 24, and I think I already drew out last time how if you read Jesus' description of the tribulation in Matthew 24, it lines up almost precisely with the seven seal judgments. So after Jesus described what we would have called the fourth seal, he said in verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Without diving into this piece of it again, the church has been raptured at this time, but... We'll see in the next chapter, a number of people will be saved during these seven years that cannot even be counted or calculated. That people are going to figure this out, that Jesus is going to be bringing in the last of that world harvest. He's going to be driving people through the judgments that he's going to pour out to a point of decision, either this way or that way. And many will come to faith in Christ. But the rise of Babylon will involve the oppression of both Jews and Christians. 17, chapter 17, talk about the woman riding on the scarlet beast, says she is drunk with the blood of the saints. And then in chapter 13, we read about how the Antichrist, the beast, as he's symbolically called, will devour and destroy the saints. It was given to him to make war on the saints and to overcome them. One reason among many why we believe in the rapture is because Jesus said the gates of hell would never prevail against the church. But then in in Revelation, we see that that's exactly what is happening. But you don't need to push that one too far. The empire that rises at Satan's inspiration is going to hate anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, whether they are a Jew and they call on the Lord out of cultural reasons and traditional reasons, or of course, those who put their faith in the Son of God who have found the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is important to know because some people, when they talk about the, uh, the last days, they say, well, this, the Christians will be preserved. They won't, they won't face any of this punishment during this time. That is simply not what the Bible says. It's going to be the worst possible time to be alive as a believer in Jesus Christ. It's going to mean death. But they're here crying out to God, wondering, God, you're sovereign, you're holy, you're true. How long are you going to allow this to go on? And we feel the same way about those who are persecuted in our time. We saw some of this in, in lesser degrees with the, the persecution of Christians from different countries that had draconian lockdowns during COVID and that were using it as an opportunity to exert control over the churches. And again, however you feel about that issue, it's very plain that that was happening. That people were trying to set precedents that we can indeed tell the churches what to do. And the churches fought back, but in some places it, it was a lot more consequences than what we faced in this state anyway. You've got the Christians in Nigeria. There's, there's very often wars in the African continent lead to uh, the slaughter of Christians because in many countries they're, they're such a minority group that when the Muslims come in or when the traditional animists come in, Uh, the Christians get caught in the middle, and that's what's been happening in Nigeria. Or even the places like China and North Korea, where they're placed in in camps, concentration camps. I don't know why we don't use that term now, maybe because it's too loaded, but it's exactly what it represents. And it is amazing that in a day when every single so-called oppressed group has to be represented and have a day and have a flag and have a parade and have an activist group, you start talking about how Christians are historically and continue to be the most oppressed group around the world, we just get told to suck it up. And we say that doesn't even make sense from a logical standpoint. If you hate those who are being oppressed, why, you know, or those who are oppressors, why do you not really care what's happening to the Christians? Because it's satanic, you guys. Because the devil is working to remove sympathy from the church even today. And many people believe that the church ought to be exterminated from around the world. They just don't want to say it. But we see this going on. And we we can feel like these martyrs right here and say, God, do you really care? Don't you see what's happening in these places? Don't you see the people that are getting their heads chopped off and getting shot up with bullets and their children getting taken away to be raised by somebody else and these people wasting away? Like, Lord, don't you care? And we can even grow angry at him if we're not careful. But look what God does. He reassures them. He gives them a robe of, of white, which we've seen this many times in Revelation, that represents the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That represents that your sins have been washed away, and now it's Christ's righteousness. And to wait until the number of martyrs is complete, which is good to remember that the Lord has facts and figures in mind when it comes to the end of the world. There is a certain number of people who must be martyred, a certain number of people who must be saved, a certain amount of wickedness that must be allowed to continue before he will judge the world. And that's all in his wisdom and in his sovereignty. But this is exactly what Jesus told us would happen in John 16, whether you're living in the tribulation or not. In the upper room discourse, right before Jesus went to the cross, he said, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Shall we just say polite society of any kind? Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus warned the church, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be killed, you're going to be imprisoned, you're going to be ostracized. I'm telling you this now so that when it happens, you will not panic and you will not fall away. Peter told the the church in 1 Peter 4, it is not a strange thing when a Christian suffers for the name of Christ. So I recognize that there are some of you here who maybe don't hold to the same interpretation of the end times as we do here. We love you. You are welcome here. Uh, I realize this might be some uncomfortable weeks for you. But anyway, we're happy you're here. But one of the most common accusations that pre-trib guys face, the believe that rapture is gonna happen before the tribulation. that so you guys just don't believe you should ever have to suffer. You think you're too good, you're Western, people that think you're all privileged and wonderful and you think, well, I should never have to suffer for any reason and that's why you believe in the rapture. First of all, I've been in pre-trib churches my whole life. I have never once heard anybody say that. I have heard that idea denounced many times. But I'll tell you right now, you can at least be comfortable here Every single person in this room should be prepared to suffer and die for the name of Jesus. We are not so special, even as Americans who are incredibly blessed to live where we do, especially those that get to live in the deep south where if there's any place where there's still some cultural value to the church, it's here. We get to live here where we're not being oppressed, we're not being persecuted. But guys, should that day come, don't panic and run away to say, well, good, we're counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Bible says everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We do not hold to the pre-trib rapture because we don't want to suffer. We are more than willing to suffer for Jesus Christ. We believe in the pre-trib rapture because that's how we believe the Bible tells it to us. And how do we feel comforted when we know that these persecutions are coming? Look what Jesus does. He acknowledges their fears and their pain. The Lord is not distant and separate. He's like, Why don't you just get along? He's like, hey, come here. And he gives them the robes, the white robes which represent Christ's righteousness. The ultimate comfort that you and I have, even as we suffer for the name of Jesus, is that we have been given the righteousness of Christ, which can never be taken away. We remember what has been won for us on the cross, that Jesus has given us everlasting life. So yes, this life might be full of pain and torture and heartache and pain, but you know what? When it's over, we face everlasting life and glorification because of what Jesus has done. Old man Polycarp, one of the church fathers, was arrested and was gonna be executed, but the, the governor, the judge, was, was a nice guy. He wasn't a believer, but he was a nice guy. He's like, look, old man, I don't want to send an old guy to be picked apart by lions, okay? Just will you renounce Jesus? Just just say Caesar is Lord so that I can let you go. And then go back and he's kind of telling him, go back and do whatever you want, just here in the courtroom. Will you please? And Polycarp said, I have followed Jesus for these 83 years, I believe it was, and he's never done me any wrong. How can I now do something like that to my Jesus? That should be the same thing for us, man. Like Naaman the Syrian when he was healed of his leprosy. Elisha didn't want anything from him. When his servant went out and was lying and being sneaky and says, oh, actually, he said he wanted a little bit of money, trying to get it for himself. Naaman was like, take it, it, man, whatever you want. Take everything you got. Now, the servant was being a bad person. But I love Naaman's idea. He's like, man, you just healed me of my leprosy. You can have my house. Like, I don't care, man. It should be the same thing for you and me with Christ. Jesus saved my soul. And you're telling me that part of the process I have to go through in order to die with Christ is to suffer? Sign me up, pal. And that doesn't make it any easier in the moment. But because that truth is hanging over everything else, that's the comfort that you must cling to. That enables us to endure to the end, trusting that God will work justice one day, even if we don't see it right now. So pray for your persecuted brothers, guys. We take time every now and then to give an update on the persecuted church. Zach always does a great job with that. But also you should be preparing yourself for the coming day of trouble. You know, we're living in very uncertain times. It's not too hard to imagine how things could get very bad very fast with the church caught in the middle because nobody really likes us. That's kind of always been the way it is, isn't it? Verses 12 through 17 now. When he opened the sixth seal, I always imagine like doom when he opens it up. I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. So the sixth seal is opened, and things take a drastic and dramatic turn for those on the earth. We have gone from things that we are accustomed to seeing, terrible as they may be, persecution, wicked empires, famine, and now things get supernatural. At least it seems that way as we read it. John beholds a terrible earthquake during which the sun and the moon are obscured, that the stars fall to the earth, the sky opens up and the earth is displaced. And I do not know how beneficial or shall I say useful it is to examine every individual detail of this because John is using stock descriptions of last day's judgment that are found often in scripture. For example, Joel chapter two, verses 30 through 31 This prophecy actually comes right on the heels of the one about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. It says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The earth shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Jesus said the same thing. Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So John is right in line with how all the other writers of the Bible have described these final events. Earthquakes, the sun and the moon being blotted out, uh, the stars falling to the earth, the sky opening up. So our interpretive questions for this passage are two. Number one, what is this? Might seem like an obvious question, but that's the question. And number two, when is this? Let's talk about this for a little bit before we begin to make application. Some people say that this is entirely symbolic and none of this is literally going to happen. These are still believers. These are still brothers, not false teaching. It's just a difference of interpretation that they say, this is symbolic of how the whole world is turning topsy-turvy. That Things that were high are low, and things that were here are gone. And when, the, when Babylon rises, when the Antichrist comes, it's just going to be so different that it's going to be like, a, like, a, like an earthquake that shook the whole world. Don't we sometimes talk about how a movement rocked the world, right? That seems a little vague for me. The problem is when you start interpreting the book of Revelation especially like that, where it, it's kind of, sort of, whatever, there are lots of things in the book of Revelation that build on one another, And if if it's very loose and very vague, then it can kind of mean whatever you want it to mean. And that's not really a a great way of doing it. Those that interpret Revelation literally, meaning that the rules of language apply like they usually do, those that interpret it that way arrive at a very narrow band of possibilities about which we can discuss. You remove that that controlling interpretation, that controlling hermeneutic, you can go anywhere which tells me it's much more likely to interpret this literally, which again, does not always mean that it's a, there's gonna be a white horse riding on the earth necessarily, right? But that that represents something that is literal. The symbol literally means something. So then we are left with that this is real. So what exactly is John describing here? Now, the most obvious one is that this is a natural disaster with earthquakes and stars falling from heaven and the sun and the moon being blotted out Now, we know that stars are, you know, like the Lion King said, right? Balls of gas burning billions of miles away. And most of them are way bigger than the earth. I guess probably all of them. And they would completely engulf us. Well, you've got to... The Bible is not speaking with scientific precision here. The point is that things are falling from the sky. They're falling from the heaven and crashing into the earth. That the sun is being blotted out. It says like sackcloth. I have not heard this interpretation elsewhere, so... You know, but I think it's a good one. This is what I think. When it says like sackcloth turned black, as in when you put sackcloth over a light, because sackcloth itself is not black necessarily, that, but it's like burlap is what sackcloth was. So if you cover a light with burlap, the light is still coming through, but not really. Also, we know that when the moon is obscured by certain kinds of ash and smoke, that it does take on kind of a reddish color. So some people say, all right, what we have here is... Mass worldwide volcanic eruptions, and that can certainly be part of it. That in places when volcanoes erupt, that it can, it can alter the weather cycle of, of certain nations because it blots out the sun, and that does all sorts of cool things with the ecology that I don't fully understand, but it darkens the sky, it gets colder, it can get hotter because it can rip up the ozone layers. I mean, imagine if there was a worldwide cataclysmic eruption of lots of volcanoes at the same time. And some people believe, okay, this is a meteor shower. That, you know, all these things that everybody gets worried about every couple years. What happens if this comet hits us? What happens if the... Well, what if it did this time? And you got, you know, celestial bodies crashing into the earth. And just completely changing the face of the globe. So that's, that's one possibility. It could also just be that this is the Lord grabbing the earth in the palm of his hand and just shaking it real good. And that there's not so much a natural explanation, so to speak other than the effects that everybody feels. The other possibility, though, so you've got the very symbolic one, you've got the natural one, is that this is some kind of worldwide nuclear exchange. And there are some godly men, scholars that I really admire, that believe this. And while it sounds odd at the beginning, the more you read through Revelation and you see the after effects of this earthquake, it's like, that really seems to make a lot of sense. Like when a bunch of demons come out of the smoke and afflict people. I mean, that's, you know, that makes some sense here. There are also examples in the Old Testament of where God said, I will rain down from heaven and destroy you. And the way it was fulfilled was Babylon or Assyria came in and destroyed the city. And that was a legitimate interpretation and fulfillment of that prophecy. So this could be when they finally do it. How's that? And everybody's been holding in check. are not using the nukes. We're not using the atom bombs. We're not using all the secret, really cool Area 51 stuff that you found on a blog somewhere. But now this time, we're going to turn it loose. And, you know, orbital missiles and all this stuff. And just the whole globe gets smashed. And so the stars falling to the earth would be those kinds of bombs and, and that thing. Um, I don't know if I love that idea. I I certainly think it's legitimate. I think it could happen. We're we're one of the few generations that live in a world where we read this description and go, yeah, we could do that. If we got really stupid, we could do that. So that could be exactly what John is prophesying. But I think this is probably much closer to the plagues of Egypt here, that God is intervening and literally rocking the world. And whether that takes the place of Uh, just earthquakes or whether the Lord decides to smash every fault line together and all the volcanoes blow up and that blots out the sun and maybe... I I don't know exactly, but it certainly seems to be divine intervention here. And uh, you can have your own fun discussing that at uh, the Home Fellowships on Tuesday and Thursday this week. But point is, it's going to be bad. It's called an earthquake, so we're going to call it an earthquake because that's probably what it means when it says earthquake. Now then, that's what it is. Here's the second question. When is this? When is this? Remember, we have a seven-year timeline, although Revelation focuses almost exclusively on the last three and a half years. Tim LaHaye is one of those guys that was very confident about this, and then this, and then this, and then this. Many others uh, don't really see it that way. They see that Revelation not as one thing leading to the next as much as things being described multiple times. And they would see this big earthquake as actually the very end. Because it says the sky is rolled up like a scroll, right? To which I would say, well, but that's a description that's used lots of places and doesn't necessarily have to mean the end of the world. But it could. Here's here's the the tricky bit when you get into Revelation. We're going to see three cycles of seven judgments. First seven are the seals that we're seeing here. The next seven are going to be trumpets. And the last seven are going to be bowls or vials, to use the uh, the old King James description there. And each one of them ends with an earthquake. And so there are some that see that and they go, oh, so you just kind of slap them on top of each other. And they all basically mean the same thing. But I don't, I've never heard somebody explain that in such a way where it made sense to me. And maybe that's because I'm not so smart. But people say, well, they're all just describing the same thing. However there's a definite escalation. For example, the first four trumpets describe a third of the waters and, this, and the grass getting destroyed. The, the first, I think, two through four, two and three bowls describe all of it. So as before it was only a piece, and then later on it's going to be all of it. And they all end with earthquakes, um, but there's a lot of earthquakes in Revelation. Chapter six has an earthquake. Chapter eight has an earthquake. Chapter 11 has two. Chapter 16 has one. And Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, verse 7, that in these days, there will be earthquakes in various places. Earthquakes. So it seems that this is not just similar descriptions of a single event, but that there are multiple earthquakes. And we even know that if you have a big old earthquake, you're going to be feeling aftershocks for a long time. And sometimes they have to reclassify something as a pre-shock, rather than an aftershock, because something happens after it that was actually worse than what came before. And so if you have something that is so bad that it's going to remove all the islands and new mountains and it's going to rip a hole in the sky, as he describes it, well, then you're going to be feeling earthquakes for a long time. And it could be that's what's going on here. I think the linear interpretation of Revelation is more natural. I think if you, you go from seals to trumpets to bowls, however... I differ from some people in that I don't think it all has to be necessarily like one through seven, one through seven, one through seven. I think there can be overlap. As we see, actually, uh, when we get to the first trumpet and the, the seventh seal, I think that they're in all likelihood describing what we just read, but they're describing what happened afterwards. I see this earthquake as the primary intervention of God into the world. Because I think just about everything after this can be explained as the ongoing after effects of this earthquake here. And as we go along, you may disagree with that. And uh, that's okay. It's going to be bad, is the short version. But the question of when remains open. If this is not just all describing the very end of the world, then what, when is this here? I think it's possible that you have here the midpoint of the tribulation because halfway through, remember the Antichrist made a covenant with Israel, halfway through he's going to break it in what we call the abomination of desolation. That's when he's going to set up the religion. Everybody's got to come and worship me. And it, it, there are some indications that when that happens, that's when things get really bad. And uh, depending on what you believe about chapter 11, it's kind of hard to talk about all this without having done the whole book yet, but just track with me best you can. Uh, it could be that 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 midpoint, that abomination of desolation will lead to a great earthquake. That that will be God's, you know, God's big intervention to show the world that this is is the rock that is going to start to strike the feet of iron and clay to use Daniel's prophecy. So I think the best description of this is that this is the midpoint of the tribulation, although I would never be dogmatic on that because it's not dogmatic in the text. But it is fun to sit there with a bunch of index cards with every piece and try to line them out. Because that's what we're supposed to do. That's not like the wrong thing to do. That's okay. God gave us prophecy. Let's try to figure out what it means. When Jesus came the first time, it was all fulfilled rather literally, was it not? Even things that we're like, I don't even know if I would have read that literally. God goes, I did. So when the second coming, we should believe the same thing. What do we have so far then? We have the rapture of the church. You have the rise of Babylon. Babylon which includes the persecution of the church, and then a major God-sized earthquake, perhaps at the midpoint. And again, I, I read this as the one singular divine intervention that leads to the terrible, increasing, and worsening fallout afterwards. I think you can also kind of read the 10 plagues of Egypt kind of like that. God strikes the water with blood. Then all the frogs come out of the water, right? And then all the frogs die. And then you get two different kinds of flies. And then you get diseases. And so that it seems that God is, God is sovereignly moving these things along. But there's a very natural progression, which shouldn't, you know, shake our faith in these things. It actually makes it seem more plausible to me anyway. That's where we are. You have the rise of Babylon and then an earthquake, a bad one, which some people interpret to be warfare. Point is that there will be many terrible plagues during this time, that I think there will be overlap between some of these descriptions. We'll read them as we get closer. Through this book, if you're taking notes, there are three main themes to follow. And this is, by the time we get through this book, I'll probably have a really good way to organize this that I'm gonna wish I had when we started. But there's three main themes to look at here. I read the whole book like six times last night. <laughs> Tried to sort through all this. But number one is the gospel, the spread of the gospel and the martyrs. That's theme number one. And these kind of, you know, will go in turn throughout the book, that people are getting saved and they're getting martyred. And Jesus is making sure that the gospel will be preached throughout all the world, no matter what. The second thread is the plagues. The thread is all the terrible things that are going to happen on the earth, like this major earthquake that just rocks the globe like never before. And the third thread is Babylon, the evil empire inspired by Satan and all the things they're doing. So far in Revelation, we have seen pieces of each one of those. As far as Babylon, Babylon has come to power, violently killing a quarter of the people on the globe. The church, we see that people are getting saved, but they're being persecuted and they're dying in great numbers. Next week, we'll look at them a little closer. And then the plagues, God stepped in and God sent an earthquake on the world that caused even the mighty and the generals and the rulers to be afraid. And as we go through, if you take the time to trace and say, okay, this section belongs to this category over here, it becomes easier, I think, to smooth them out when you come to the end. What is more relevant for our context today, not that this is irrelevant, but in terms of what we're discussing, is the dread of the wicked when the wrath of the Lamb comes. This giant earthquake be it warfare or be it whatever, you know, meteor showers or whatever you want to describe it. Every person on earth fears this day. It says from the top to the bottom, the slaves all the way up to the rulers of the world. And they all recognize that this is the wrath of God and his son, Jesus Christ, the lamb. The day of wrath has come. Have you noticed that when terrible tragedies happen, Society and people will have at least one profound moment of clarity. Do you remember after 9-11, how full the churches were for about two weeks? Because people recognized some, some, our whole world has been shattered. We've got, to, we've got to look to God. Or even, you know, in, you look at COVID when that happened. And people got weird during that time. We all know that. But everybody was, all of a sudden, the tick, uptick in interest in Bible prophecy The interest in religion, what does God have to say about these things? Some people violently opposing it and saying, it has nothing to do with God. And it's like, well, why are you yelling so much then? People can recognize, because there is a conscience, there is a God-sized hole in the heart that people can recognize. You know, And when, when this is over, we're going to read that they're going to shake it off and get right back to what they were doing. But in the moment, you know good and well, people go, oh my goodness, if I die right now, I'm going to hell. If I die today, that's it. I've been a terrible person. I'm going to die. And you've got to hide me because if Jesus finds me, that's it. I think also you will have seen all of these martyrs would have been testifying and warning that this is coming. So everybody's going to know good and well what this is, even if they doubted it beforehand. And this prophecy of people hiding themselves once again draws from all over the Bible. John, among other things, is compiling Bible scripture into one definitive book. Hosea, chapter 10, verse 8. He wrote, the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. In Luke 23, when Jesus was actually on his way up the hill to be crucified, he turned to the women that were following and said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So if you think it's bad now, you guys. You have no idea what it's going to be like in that, those days. I once had a tree fall in my backyard in the night. And I was at the back of the house, and it fell, and it broke out a window in the house. And the noise was absolutely deafening and terrifying, especially since it was unexpected. Just raining outside, normal night, and, you know, the trunk had rotted out, and, you all know, just that, and so it, my, I, I'm telling you, I'm sitting at my desk, and it's the desk that's in my office now, if you want to go take a look. the The door that you open up, remember when you used to put the monitor, or not the, you put the computer inside the thing, and you'd open it like this. That door, the hinge, broke off its hinges a long time ago, but you can kind of shove it in. My desk is shaking like this. The door popped out and fell on the floor because it was so loud. It was rattling and shaking the house, and you know I was like, ah, you know, yelling because I didn't know what was about to. I thought I was going to die. I thought it was blowing up from the inside or something like that. It was so loud. I've, I, I've cut down trees before. When you can see it happening, it's kind of cool. We have no idea what's going on, and it's just that noise outside back there. It freaks you out. My wife screamed at the top of her lungs. I didn't even hear it. I heard a giant crash. It broke through the window, and all four of my children slept through it. <laughs> but imagine this then. Imagine every mountain being brought low, every every. Island fleeing away. Imagine the the turmoil and the upheaval in the world. Stars falling. The sun and the moon don't even look right anymore. And things are smashing into the earth. Whatever the fulfillment might be, people will be terrified. The wrath of God has come. God sees the persecution of his church and will only tolerate it until the proper time has come. Just as Jesus did not cleanse the temple until the end of his ministry, despite year after year after year of walking in there, seeing what they were doing, ripping people off, gouging the prices, keeping the Gentiles from worshiping. The last time he went, he's like, this time... We're flipping the tables over. I made a whip special for this occasion. I'm driving people out of this temple. And it says the disciples saw him and were amazed because they'd never seen Jesus like this. The world will not recognize Jesus when he starts pouring out his wrath on the earth. This is the wrath of the lamb. And who is the lamb? It's Jesus Christ. Do you have room in your conception of Jesus for the one that would pour this kind of wrath out on the globe if you don't, you need to adjust it because this is Jesus. And note that 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says that those who are in Christ are not appointed to wrath, that we will not endure wrath because all the wrath for us was taken by Jesus on the cross, which is why I think it totally precludes the possibility that the church is on the earth during this time because that would involve the church facing the wrath of Christ which he is doing in this passage in response to the outcry of the martyred saints. We've talked about that before, so I'll just move on from it. But so many people want justice. They want God to step in. Why doesn't God do something about all this? I could never believe in a God that would let somebody shoot up a school like that. I can never believe in a God that could let this kind of war happen or this kind of disaster happen. And by saying that, they're putting themselves, as the psalmist says, in the seat of the scoffer. They're sitting down and saying, I know better than God. I'm smarter than God. I'm more righteous than God. And if I was in charge of the world, things would be going better. Not realizing that if God were to pour out his justice today, you'd be found guilty too. Have you noticed that there are certain people that love to take a stand for a righteous cause? And because they've taken a stand for a righteous cause, they see no need to improve themselves. I can be a jerk. I can be a loser. I don't have to do anything because I'm on the right side of this issue. And there's no political party that has a monopoly on that, let me tell you. If I'm standing over here, then you you can't criticize me. But God goes, I can and I will. I see things perfectly. I see things exactly the way they are. And Amos the prophet, in Amos 5.18, he said to the people he was preaching to, why do you desire the day of the Lord? I would say this to many people that are desperate for God's justice and retribution. Why do you want God to pour out justice? Don't you know, as Amos said, it is darkness and not light that is not gonna go well for you on that day? If you've not repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your sacrificial lamb, then the only thing the lamb has left for you is wrath. Rest assured, you will reap the fullness of the debt that you have incurred because of sin. Not just someday, but even today, the Lord will allow you to endure things, to reprimand you for what you've done we've got to be willing, church, to say it and to say it loud and to say it with our chest when the world is demanding justice. So you don't want justice. In one sense, you do, right? Like, I mean, we want to advocate for things that are fair and righteous. However, if you want fairness from God, fairness from God means you go to hell. That doesn't seem fair. Uh, why exactly? Well, everybody does, everybody does bad things. Yeah, that's the point. That's why Jesus had to die. Jesus is where the ultimate unfairness happened so that you could experience the ultimate unfairness. Jesus took your punishment so that he could give you his righteousness. That's not fair what they did to Jesus. Well, no more fair than you getting his righteousness out of the deal. That's mercy. Because God cares about you and loves you. But if you sit here demanding instant retribution, when the Lord says no, he's being kind to you. The Lord sees it. And the Lord doesn't just see what you see. He sees all of it. I'm the kind of person that, I I get so so skeptical sometimes, I'm afraid to even take a stand on certain things that are happening in the nation because I do not trust the people giving me the information about what's happening. Well, didn't you see what happened? Like, yeah, I saw what happened, but I also know that this guy has also said this 10 other times, and that turned out not to be true. God goes, don't worry. I see everything. I'm omnipresent. I'm omniscient. I see the heart of man. I see the deeds of man, and I see the big picture. And one day the Lord will return to judge the living and the dead, and he will return to rescue his righteous ones. The Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, Emperor Constantine, the first Christian emperor, walked into this, this gathering of Christian theologians. Constantine did not participate, but he was there to observe. There was an amazing moment that happened in that point in history. They brought out... To be shown before all the, the congregation, all the pastors and bishops that were there to discuss these matters, they brought out all the old men that had survived the persecutions under the previous empires. They had had their limbs chopped off. They had had their faces maimed. they were crippled, they were missing fingers, they were missing arms. and there they they were these old men that had lived through that and seen countless brothers and sisters killed, crucified, burned alive, fed to the wild animals. And in comes Emperor Constantine, and Eusebius tells us how he went down, bowed the knee, and paid homage to these men that had survived the persecutions. What a picture that is. Rome, bowing before the martyrs of God, the witnesses of God. What a switch. But this is nothing compared for those that are going to face the wrath of Jesus on that terrible day. Those that do not see things God's way now will be made to see them later. One day, an evil empire will arise and it will afflict believers so terribly Jesus will pour out his wrath on the earth beginning with a mighty earthquake that will shatter the globe and the fallout, as we will read through this book, will ruin the earth. Talk about climate change. You watch and see, my friends. It's going to change. But even so, the wickedness of men will increase without repentance. Because the Holy Spirit, through the salt and light of the church, will no longer be drawing them to himself. I urge each and every one of you today, don't call for the mountains to fall on you and hide you. Sometimes we don't call the mountains to fall on us. We, we call upon our job to hide us. We call upon our kids to hide us. We call upon our hobbies and our relationships or politics to hide us from the, the sight of Jesus Christ, to hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Because you know if you look him in the eye, you know good and well where you stand. And facing up to it is just too terrible for you. I'm telling you that because the wrath of Jesus has not come yet, the grace of Jesus is still available to you right now. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow. To fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, meaning y'all have been saying Jesus is coming back for 2,000 years. He says, nah, Lord is not slow, but is patient toward you. Why would he be patient? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why would God delay so long? Because he wants many, many more people to receive his forgiveness first so that he can be coming not to bring retribution upon you, but to rescue you on that day. If you will turn from your old life and commit yourself to Jesus, if you will believe in his sacrifice on the cross, believe in his resurrection, call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And then you will not receive thunderstones from heaven falling on you. You'll receive a robe of righteousness in the presence of Almighty God. But if not, then the judgment of God remains upon you. And you have no more excuses because I told you today and the Lord will say, well, you heard it on April 30th, 1053. Tyler told you. You can't say you didn't know because you know now. And as the scripture says, before the great and terrible wrath of the Lamb, who can stand